Hi, this is Steve Morse, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hi, my name is German, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, folks, this is Steve Vai, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. So turn it up. Oh! Hello and welcome to episode 170 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I am your host, John. Episode 170, we're going to go guitar geek on you. We have three special guests. We have Jane Getter, a really phenomenal jazz fusion rock guitarist, uh, who you may remember from the Saturday Night Live band. We also have German Schaus, who uh, is on Digital Nations Records, a phenomenal um, call him a shredder, I guess, for uh, lack of maybe a nicer word. German, uh, a brilliant guitarist, a uh, instructor at Berkeley, uh, an author, has written uh, several books which we talk in great detail about, and uh, has got a solo album out as well. So we'll get to German. And also, for the first time on the show, someone I've wanted to have on the show from literally episode one, Mr. Steve Vai. Uh, many people, when they talk about music, uh, people we've interviewed over the years, will ask them about what turned them on to music. And I have to say, aside from Kiss, which was kind of an obvious influence on this show, uh, the moment I heard Yankee Rose from David Lee Roth, I remember uh, sitting in front of MTV, like many of you, in the aftermath of what was Van Halen. And at the time, I was only about 15 years old. So uh, I knew of Van Halen. I remember Van Halen with David Lee Roth, but... They were already kind of gone by the time I got into puberty. But I remember the moment that Steve Vai made that guitar talk at the beginning of Yankee Rose and what a profound impact on me. I immediately, at the time, had a really cheap uh, like Montgomery Ward's guitar, totally ripped it apart, painted it neon green uh, just to try to make it look like Steve's guitar. So it's a very monumental moment for me in music. So we're going to talk to him in just a minute. But first I want to let you know, Iron City Rocks has announced the release of their iPhone and iPad app. If you go to ironcityrocks.com, you'll find a link for it there. If you're in the iTunes store, iTunes app store, I should say, on your device, just search for Iron City Rocks. Uh, The app is free. Uh, It'll give you the ability to listen to the latest episode, Uh, get to our website, get to all our social media sites, also as concert calendars if you happen to live in western Pennsylvania. But even if you don't, uh, the ability to listen to the latest episode is there. And uh, also, anytime we're having a giveaway, there's a code in the app itself that if you enter in the form for a contest, we double your chance of winning. So, And it's free. Come on. Also, I want to remind you to check out castironring.com, a uh, collection of podcasts from all over the world. Uh, we just added Wiki Metal from Brazil. Uh, phenomenal, uh, amazingly large podcast. Uh, those Brazilians are so passionate about their hard rock and metal. Also, we've got a show from Spain called Mars Attacks uh, and several shows from Canada, the United States. Uh, I think you know most of them we've mentioned over the uh, course of the last year or so. So check that out, castironring.com. And I would love it if you would go to uh, Facebook 
and search for the cast iron ring and like us there keep you abreast of not only iron city rocks goings on but also the other shows as well so check that out please so without further ado mr steve Vai. Guitarist extraordinaire Steve Vai. How are you doing today, Steve? Doing great, man. How are you doing? Wonderful. i got to ask you first off, um, you were just uh, through the Pittsburgh area the other day and uh, put on a heck of a show. How does it feel to be back on the road doing a full-on Steve Vai show? Well, you know, it was odd because um, I, my last full solo show was five years ago when I did a, mm-hmm. uh, a two-month tour. And... Um, <clears throat> I, I guess one of the one of the things that's a challenge for me is I'm really interested in a lot of things. So for the past five years, instead of making another record, studio record, and going on tour, and making another record and going on tour, which I probably could have made three records and done three full tours in the last five mm-hmm. years, I, you know, I, I I find interest in some other things like um, I did an Alien Guitar Secrets Masterclass tour, and mm-hmm. I did an Experience Hendrix tour, Dweezil Zappa tour. I composed three symphonies and released uh, a live double a double live orchestra record and then I, I put a band together and I, I released a live video with the two violins so you know it's all really quite uh, interesting and exciting but when I did put, release the new record um, The Story of Light and I put this band together and I got on stage and did the full show I realized that this is what I do best yeah. and this is what I enjoy doing the most being on stage and playing and I, I just thought you know man you gotta got to keep it focused and just keep keep playing. So, I mean, I've booked myself for the next two years on tour. Do you think it, do you think it helped to kind of walk away? I mean, not say walk away. I mean, you were obviously very active with other things, and you've toured, as you mentioned. But do you think it helped kind of recharge the batteries to, to kind of walk uh, away from... I, I don't think that... Yeah, I don't think the batteries were ever not charged, you know. I mean, they were just, they were just being used in different kinds of vehicles, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, I, I feel... More on top of my game than ever, you know, like my fingers are moving great. I'm moving on stage in a whole new kind of a way. You know, my goal is to merge the notes with my body language Mm -hmm. and make it look like audio visual poetry when I play, you know? Yeah. And it's a fun goal, you know, it's a really fun goal. And if you focus on that, then that's what starts to happen. But I'm noticing that I'm a work in progress because there's so much to do and it's all about letting go and letting the, you know, really letting the music infiltrate every cell of your body. Certainly. And in order to do that, it's a mindset as opposed to anything else. Well, let me ask you, you, you put out the Story of Light earlier this year. Um, was was there a particular track that was first and, and that kind of 
set the wheels in motion and made the other ones come quickly, or or did you kind of? I, I know in the in the bonus DVD you talk about your shelf of inspiration and ideas and things. You know, how did how did the process come together of putting it all together as a collective of work? Well, it actually started with my last studio record called Real Illusions, where I had a storyline that I wanted to express over a series of records. So that was, you know, first and foremost, but I didn't want the music to be bogged down by esoteric stories and stuff. So, you know, when I go to make a record, it's according to what kind of a record I want to make, but something like The Story of Light is a very kind of biased record where there's a lot of different dynamics and different dimensions. But what you look for is a really compelling, exciting idea for a song. And once you... <clears throat> Once you're able to get that, and it could start with just a riff that you played, it could be an idea, it could be something else you heard. Like, for instance, one of the first things I decided to record for this record was um, I had this compilation of um, early American music called uh, Anthology of American Folk Music, and there's this amazing performance of this song, John the Revelator, mm-hmm. by um, Blind Willie Johnson. And as soon as I heard it, I just heard this entire huge piece of music, almost like an epic Broadway piece, you know, that had this this, uh, singer on it, and then, you know, this huge choir doing this very contrasting, almost hokey kind of uh, performance to this quasi-gospel, I mean, et cetera, et cetera. So that became an overwhelming idea. And once it reaches a feverish pitch, you just can't, you know, you, you just become myopic. Artists mm. are crazy that way, you know. You just you just kind of have to do it. You feel like there's nothing more important in the world than you. It's a blessing and a curse. Certainly, yeah. And now I have to admit, when, when I listen to the uh, the John the Revelator, which is a track I'm uh, certainly familiar with, I, I know many, many bands have done that over the years, and and a great vocal choice with Beverly, but the one thing that when the, when the song really kicks in, I can almost hear a, a Jack Butler a guitar there. Is that? Uh, did you take any inspiration back from your uh, Crossroads days? Well, I didn't think of it. You know, Crossroads. When I did the Crossroads movie, there was a script mm-hmm. and it was blues based, so I put my mind into it. You know, in that way. But with John the Revelator, I mean, I, I just heard inspiring music mm-hmm. by Blind Willie Johnson. I wasn't thinking of Crossroads, but Jack Butler is obviously in there someplace. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I kind of a draw from the you know of a song of that nature. It really, really turned out fantastic. Uh, Gravity Storms was that? Uh, how long has that riff been around? I mean, that's a one I got to ask you. Is it, are you detuned in that, or, or how are you getting notes that deep? You doing well, a lot when of I was doing gra- yeah with Gravity Storm, it was just one of those many, many little moments of inspiration where you play something and you go ah, you get like that little aha moment. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, there's something in there, you know. And yeah. I recorded that riff probably, and it was just just a few notes, right? You know, and I recorded it probably about I don't know five six years ago. I was in the middle of a composing of a, a, a symphony actually, uh, but I was continuing to play it all the time. And and then you get a pull to it, you know. You listen back, and maybe there's ten ideas on you know on the iPhone, mm-hmm. like a hundred. And they just go, oh, my gosh, that one's really cool. And then all of a sudden it unfolds in your mind. And when I heard the riff that I had laid down, you know, for Gravity Storm, it was just the boom, and that then sounded like something, you know. Yeah. It had this attitude of, like, it created this illusion of weight. So then I just started thinking, you know, what if I made a whole song that 
had these cadences on on the riffs that just created this like pull, you know, this, mm-hmm. this weight. And I thought that might give, give the song a whole, uh, you know, a uh, whole atmosphere and an illusion. So then that idea reached a feverish pitch, you know, and then I just had to do it. And it was a lot of work because I had to, you know, relearn uh, or redefine mm-hmm. my approach to the instrument to get that song out. But it was rewarding, you know. Yeah, absolutely. That, it it kind of harked me back to the first time I heard Bad Horsey when that song came out. I was like, you know, this is, it seems like a song that to me will, will stand the test and hopefully remain in your set list for a very, very long time. Um, well, thanks. I can tell you that it's really, certainly a lot of fun to play live, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, the new studio that you, you uh, walk us through in the, on the bonus DVD, um, having that I don't want to say toy because obviously that's it's a lot of work. But I mean, is that a blessing or a curse having that easy access to the studio? Do you find yourself, you know, having to kind of pull yourself away intentionally, or is it uh, very liberating to be able to kind of write whenever you want, you know, and lay down ideas? You know, it's been it, there's pros and cons to it. You know, the pros are I can work whenever I want, I can do whatever I want. It saves me a fortune of having to rent studio time. Certainly. And and I can work in my own environment, which I'm not comfortable going into studios and working. I always feel there's pressure mm-hmm. from, uh, you know, time constraints and also people listening in. And, you know, you just, it, it's, it's, it's informal. But, um, you know, the, the, the cons are that, you know, I'm at my home. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, you know and, and I do have all the time in the world and that can slow things down because yeah. you know you you don't have that edge of um you know uh that's that frantic edge of pressure and i like pressure you know i, yeah. I respond very well <clears throat> so some you know it's it's, it's pros and cons and you got to keep up with you know technology which can be very expensive but i i, I really enjoy technology yeah, I know when you were talking about the, you know, contrasting the compressors and things, I'm like, you know, that, that's, it's gonna be a lot of work to go through and, and decide all that stuff and, and, and know how it all goes together, you know, where you, you could walk into a studio in LA and let an engineer worry about all that stuff. But. Yeah, you know, when you do it your whole life, it becomes academic. <clears throat> yeah. The most important thing is, the most important thing is how the notes hit the chords and how you feel when you listen back. All the other stuff is just academic. And are you are you the type of person that that is never fully satisfied with a recording and just has to say you know this is it this is the final take or, or um, are you a person who can you know kind of say okay I like what I captured even if it's not you know note for note perfect but the energy is there. No, I I really enjoy um, the process and when I know when it's done and I don't finish it until all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and and to me. Every note has its place. There's absolutely nothing out of place, and, and I, don't, I wouldn't want to change anything. And when I feel that, then I feel like it's done. And I'm very happy with it. I, I mean, not to sound pretentious or arrogant, mm-hmm. but I love my music, and I listen to it all the time. You know? yeah. well, hey, you're not alone there. Not alone there. Um, speaking of your own music, you um, obviously started Favorite, Nation, Favorite Nations now. It's uh, been quite some time. How is, is that experience uh, similar to how you thought it would be or, or maybe different than you thought the experience of owning a label would be? Well, you know, I also have a fascination with the music business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, working with Frank Zappa at such an early age, I realized the vital importance of protecting your intellectual property 
and, you know, when you sign your name on something to make sure that you're being compensated appropriately. And all the, you know, the record, contemporary record contrast tracks are, you know, lopsided. They're really kind of, um, you know, they're, they're, they're built by people who are fascinated with numbers and not notes. You sure, know? sure. So I, I never felt, I was not, I never felt, uh, you know, panicked to have to get a record deal. You know, I was never a slave to, you know, those kinds of things, which allowed me the, the, um, the space to, to do things myself and, and feel very confident because I wasn't running. I, I didn't feel like I had to be famous or I had to release something to a label. So when I started Favorite Nations, it was really just a product of my understanding of the conventional label model, major label model, and the fact that there's an audience for everything. And the kinds of artists that I built the label for were very musician-oriented or, you know, very passionate kind of artists that knew what they wanted to do. They had all their, you know, they had confidence and they were able to deliver. But maybe they don't necessarily sell a lot of records, you know, based on pop culture. Certainly. But there is an audience, and I knew how to get to that audience, and I knew how to construct a deal that I thought was very fair, so that an artist that might sell five to 10,000 records could, you know, release the record, you know, eat well and go on tour. And, and it worked for a while, but then when the, uh, you know, when, they, when the, the whole model changed and the technology changed, getting those kinds of records into stores has just become, you know, virtually impossible. Certainly. So I always look to make, you know, lemonade out of lemons, and I, I, I embrace technology and see how it can work in my favor. And as a result, you know, it, it simplified things amazingly because now we have digital nations, which, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, an artist can come to and, and, you know, get their music distributed digitally in hundreds of stores around the world. And uh, it, it really simplifies things. Certainly and, does. Um, yeah. Yeah, I know. So you just got to kind of look around the corners, you know. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting you bring about how the music has changed because, you know, I think about your career, and obviously you've had great and, you know, enormous success as part of bands and um, as a solo artist. But when you look at, like, something like Flexible, which has obviously been very lucrative for you over your career, um, you know, I can't imagine many record companies in today's environment taking a chance on a record like that. You know, I think a lot, you know, People would hear Little Green Men and say, this guy's, you know, I don't know. And, you know, it's great that there are still avenues for guitarists and, and artists to go, you know, which is wonderful. Well, I feel I feel more than any time in history, right now is the best time for an independent artist because there's more tools at their disposal mm-hmm. to be independent and retain their copyrights and still get their music out there, the music that they want. Sure. And you know, though you know, like when I did Flexible, it was a different time and a different thing. But I probably, if I released it today, I would probably take the same approach as I took back then, which was a very independent approach. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, like I say, if you're not panicked to sign a deal and get your, you know, because you yeah. feel like that's the only way you're going to be heard, it, it just leaves you open to so many other options. But you still yeah. got to work your ass off, you know. Yeah, yeah, you still got to be able to play and work. That's. And I think there's a lot of people out there that can play, but maybe don't work as hard, and that's that's a great point. Awesome. Steve, I want to thank you so much. It's been an honor to talk to you. All right. Thank you, man. All right. You take care. We'll see you down the road. Take care. Bye. All right. There you have it. The incomparable Steve Vai joining us. Uh, It was really awesome to get a chance to talk to him. Big, big thrill for me. So thank you all out there for indulging me. 
want to remind you, uh, if you're listening to this uh, the week it comes out, on the 30th of September, if you're in the western Pennsylvania region, Iron City Rocks and Guitar Center Pittsburgh, who is a proud sponsor of the show, will be welcoming Mr. Eric Johnson to do an in-store question and answer session at the Guitar Center store that's actually in Robinson Township, for those of you uh, familiar with the area, not the one in Monroeville. Nothing wrong with the one in Monroeville, but he will be the one in Robinson if you actually want to see it. 12.30, Sunday morning. Actually, Sunday afternoon at that point. 12.30 to 1. He'll be uh, answering questions from uh, folks there and doing a little demonstration, etc. Just so you know, he will not be signing autographs, but if you would like to enter to win autographed items, go to ironcityrocks.com and uh, click on the link to our Facebook page or go to facebook.com forward slash ironcityrocks. There is a link right along the top below the picture of uh, the staff with Alice Cooper that has Eric's picture on, or I'm sorry, it has a star, and it says enter to win Eric Johnson autographed items. Fill the form out. Um, You'll either need to pick the item up at the show, or you can pick it up at Guitar Center, um, you know, at a future time. So we will not be mailing it out. So uh, if you're out of the western Pennsylvania area, you're welcome to win. You just got to come here to get it, so... What I'm going to do now, we're going to introduce you to a guitarist, German Schaus. Uh, German is on Digital Nation's label, uh, which is the one that Steve mentioned in the interview. This is a track off of his uh, 2010 release, I believe. It's called The Final Showdown. And then we're going to learn all about this amazing, amazing player.
Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome to the show German Schaus. How are you doing, German? Very good. How are you, John? I am doing great. Um, you have um, you came to my attention uh, just a few weeks ago in talking to the great folks at Favored Nations, uh, the record label uh, owned and operated by Steve Vai, um, and uh, wanted to talk to you, listen to some of your material, and uh, amazing player. Uh, you've got an obvious, uh, very heavy classical influence. So I wanted to talk to you and get to know more about you as a player. Um, do you want to just kind of back us up to, to what drew you to the guitar to begin with? Well, I grew up in Germany, so um, my uh, the place that I was born was uh, uh, was Beethoven's birthplace, and uh, so there was always a lot of music in my house, and uh, you know, in my town in general, and um, I had an interest in music very early on. I studied uh, piano, and um, when I was a kid, and at some point I wanted to do something different, and. Um, my grandmother always wanted me to learn the guitar, so naturally she uh, bought me a classical guitar and enrolled me in the uh, in the uh, in a conservatory, and uh, off I went. And so that's how I started playing guitar, classical guitar at first. Okay. Before I decided to uh, switch to uh, rock guitar. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you make that big transition. Now. Um the German education system is obviously very different. Was this sort of in lieu of, of a, you know, what in the United States we think of as a high school that you went to? Actually, it's a little bit different. Um, the pre-conservatory level is all based on um, the federal government and the cities. Okay. And so it's an official school. It's a, it's a school, and you still go to high school. It's just an afternoon school that you okay. go to. So you'd go there and you study with the professor, and you would have your training classes and also a second instrument, which is piano. And you would study, um, and you would go there or you enroll in, in this type of system relatively early because the goal for this type of system is not just to educate you, um, but also if you're interested eventually, then take on uh, the entrance exams for uh, a regular conservatory, music conservatory, which is relatively hard to get into in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. There's only... Depending on which place you want to go to, there's only six to ten openings a semester, so it's uh, very, you know, it's it's uh, a lot of work and a lot of competition to to get through. So it's only the best best built. Um, sure. So that's the system. Uh, can I inquire? Did you grow up in in West Germany or East Germany? Yes, yeah, so I grew up in Bonn. That's the capital of West Germany. Okay. Yeah. And how was that? I mean, you you were, you know, I believe you and I are probably roughly the same age. How was that experience growing up socially? I mean, with the, with the whole East West Germany thing, and, and did that have any impact on you as an artist? I mean, I imagine that turmoil wasn't easy to live with on a day to day basis. Well, you know, I think a lot of, uh, especially in America, a lot of people forget how um, how you know things were after the war and how uh, traumatic. You know, mm-hmm. I know, you know, you can't. You can't really blame, you know, this or that, but, you know, war is terrible on all, on all sides. And um, in Germany, you know, there was, you know, trauma and PSD all over the place, just the same way, you know, uh, soldiers experience these days. And mm-hmm. people are talking about it, and back then nobody talked about it. Sure. But I would say from from a social component, um, there was a lot of there was a lot of issues, you know, in Germany after the war with, you know, people returning, being completely uh, traumatized, mm-hmm. uh, families being traumatized, and all this stuff. And then, you know, of course, you have the national trauma of a separated country. Yeah. And a lot of people can't really understand what that means when all of a sudden, you know, your families can see each other. When yeah. you were um, relocated 
from your hometown, from your home area, uh, to just, you know, be able to survive. I mean, there's only another, you know, state in, in this in this world that is right now separated, which is Korea. So, yeah. yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people probably identify with that situation there, and it probably brings it closer to home because it is current, and we know, you know, the tensions and things like that, but... No. Um, were you in Germany uh, when the wall came down, or were oh, you over yeah. in the States? I was, I was like, uh, how old was I? I was like 14. Okay. That happened. Yeah, I was 14. It was in 1989. And, um, yeah, it was a very vivid moment in, in my, uh, you know, in my youth. Um, and uh, it's, uh, you know, Germany has come a long way, you know, in regards to political uh, things and economy things, um, you know, and it's it's um, it's a very interesting well, it, it was a very interesting time to live in. I mean, in general, we live in very interesting times, you may say. Yeah, yeah, maybe not for a good reason, but yeah, it's yeah. certainly interesting. But, uh, I mean, growing up, um, you know, we've heard stories of what life was like in East Germany and, and the USSR and things like that, but as far as a, in West Germany and your exposure to Western music, was it pretty similar to anywhere else in Europe at that point? I would say so. Um I grew up, you know, I grew up on American movies, American mm-hmm. TV shows. Okay. Uh, my my biggest influences, you know, as a kid, I would say, was the film music or the compositions to, uh, you know, such TV shows like uh, MacGyver, Remington okay. Steel, The A Team, Simon and Simon, you know, all those things. It was just Frank Lupo and uh, 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 Mike Post. Those were the two guys that composed all the shows from the 80s, early 80s on. Okay. And that was kind of like what I listened to when I was a kid. Uh, next to, of course, the, the classical, the serious music, you know. Sure. But to me, that yeah. was it, you know. Yeah, I guess as an American, I had hoped that the A-team never made it outside our borders, but unfortunately... Well, I wish he would have kept it half <laughs> in, in check, but, you know, he made it out to Germany, and he became famous. <laughs> yeah, that's, it is kind of sad when you think about the whole event of the wall, you think of the Hof, and that's 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 not a, you know, for all that wall meant to everyone, the Hof wasn't exactly... Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to remember it. Um, well, if you... He certainly had a fun career in Germany by that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, um, when you when you went to to start your studies, um, roughly how old were you when you took up the instrument? Were you were you pretty young? There's a lot of like classical guitars you could think of. I was young, but I was very scattered. Um, you know, the guitar or just in general music was always something that was in our house, and um, I've always looked at it from a you know, I'll do a little bit here and I'll do a little bit there, but not a real commitment. I think I seriously started to commit myself to uh, the guitar uh, when I was just about 12 years old. Okay. Uh, and at that point, I, you know, intensified my studies in classical music, and I kind of took the same, the thing a little bit more serious. Um, but nothing really to, like, you know, what other what you might read of other people's biographies and stuff. I mean, you know, it sounds always so, um, you know, so self-sacrificing sometimes. Yeah. Oh, you know, I gave up my life and spent 15 hours practicing. I was a pretty normal child, you know. Yeah. I just, I went out with my friends, um, you know, played Legos, played Star Wars, you know, mm. anything like that. You know, it's nothing. I mean, I, you know, I knew I wanted to make music and I committed myself to music. But, you know, I would say after practicing for two hours, that was it for me. You know? Yeah, which which puts you about 90 minutes ahead of me, which you yeah, in the practice regimen, which explains why I'm talking to you. Yeah. But um. Now, did you? Are you located in the United States now? Or are you? Yes, I live in Los Angeles. Okay. I've been, uh, living in the states uh, since '98. Um, when I graduated high school and after my military service, I um, I studied uh, 
music, guitar, and I also went uh, uh, and studied pre-med at the same time. Oh, okay. But, um, I got uh, I got an invite to Berkeley, and I received a scholarship at some point. And then from there on, I, uh, you know, kind of pretty much packed up my life in Germany and um, moved to Boston in 1998 to attend Berkeley College of Music. And, okay. you know, I've been living in, in the States ever since. Okay. And, and just to compress, because I, I, we've had many guests uh, over the years that have, have gone through the Berkeley program to talk about, um, you know, the tr- type of musician they try to mold you into. But um, how would you compare that to your studies, you know, back in Germany as far as how rigid it was? Or, you know, is there were there similarities to the programs or were they very, very different? They are similar in, in certain ways. And nowadays, of course, um, you know, music education has changed uh, all over the world. Uh, yeah. just to, uh, because pop music has become an accepted form of contemporary music. You know, when people were talking about a college of contemporary music, people or the academics would understand contemporary music to be jazz. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the admittance of having pop and rock music actually as a regular part of an academic program is a huge step forward in any type of uh, academic situation. And that has been happening within the last, I would say, almost 10 years. Before that, contemporary music was mostly understood to be jazz. And she studies mm-hmm. jazz. Um, so it's, you know, and, and I would say from a comparison from, let's say, Berkeley to any other school in the world, uh, would probably be the same because, you know, jazz is a series of traditional music in certain mm-hmm. ways. And there's a lot of theory and a lot of studying and a lot of analysis and, of course, a lot of writing as, as well involved. So it has the same serious undertone. And I'm not saying that pop music doesn't have it because it all depends on who writes the curriculum for understanding pop music and for teaching pop music. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there there certainly is a method to pop music that I don't think a lot of people appreciate. You know, it, it doesn't become as popular as it is by accident, certainly. <laughs> now, um, one of the things, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you have um, been involved with a lot of books uh, on shredding of, uh, they're entitled Shredding, like Paganini and, and things like that. Yes. Um, when you look at some of the things, especially uh, Paganini, um, is it really? Are you really adding anything shred to it, or is it is that, that music by its nature almost the definition of shredder? You know what I mean? Where I'm going yes, with the question. See, for, when I started series with Alfred Publishing, uh, I started out with shredding Bach, and I totally didn't realize uh, what I got myself into because <laughs> uh, it's a lot of work, and I oh, had yeah. a. And most people probably don't understand how quick you have to write the stuff. And um, so I finished shredding Bach, for example, in two months. The same thing goes for shredding Paganini. So I wrote the, you know, most of my books, actually, I wrote in less than three months. Plus, you have to record all this stuff, and that means you have to learn it, or you have to try to learn it. Yeah. Uh, and since it's not a performance CD that goes with the book, it's for academic purposes. You know, you have to kind of let go of certain things. I mean, if I wanted to make it perfect, I would have to ask for much more time and, um, you know, and then I would really dig into the whole thing. But since there's a deadline and you have to do everything yourself, pretty much, you know, you just hit record and hope for the best. That's pretty much how it goes. Yeah. Now, from the technical point that you mentioned with Paganini, and that goes for a lot of classical composers, mm. actually. There's always a comp- technical component. With Paganini, it's a little bit different because he was a guitar player as well. Mm. So a lot of his compositions have a guitar-like touch to it. Okay. 
necessarily they are uh, almost as made as for guitar, but they are not so difficult to translate to guitar as it would be, for example, what I did with Bach, which is completely okay. uh, impossible sometimes to do, and you have to like let your imagination flow and just hope for the best. So Paganini has this kind of guitar-like thinking because he's he was a guitar player as well. So it's not just a violin player; he was also a very good guitar player. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're breaking these pieces down, and this is something I've always kind of wrestled with as, as a fledgling guitarist, um, you know, obviously you're taking a, a piece of work from Bach, say, for example, and you're going to determine what those notes are, but how much thought do you have to give to kind of the fingering of, you know, the positions and things like that when you're transcribing music like that? Well, that's actually the biggest thing. Everybody can just play the note. You know, you can take a score out and you just play the note, you know, and the next note and so on you don't have to worry about the flow of notes but that's the whole issue of music you want to make the music flow right. so looking at any type of classical composition so for example in the shredding series I wrote Shredding Bach that was the first one then Shredding Paganini and my last one that just came out actually it's called Shredding the Composers and that's a you know a, a medley of ten different classical composers throughout the uh, different ranges of time and the the hard part is really to arrange the music in a coherent way that it is playable on guitar. I'm not just sitting there mm-hmm. and the note and just adding the note on a, you know, on the staff and then on the top of your just designing a random finger. I have to find the phrases, I have to find mm-hmm. the music that then I can develop into guitar like phrases and then put that to paper. So that's actually one of the biggest concerns that I have when I look at non guitar music is mm-hmm. how to make guitar music. Yeah, and that was always something, you know, I, I, not to the scale you have, but when you look at pieces, it's very easy to take a piece and just kind of go in a linear fashion up and down the neck, but to make it efficient and smooth and flow, um, you know, because even, you know, a G might be on two adjacent strings. They don't have quite the same tonal qualities. Um, That's another consideration, yeah. Uh, a lot of people forget on the guitar, you can play the same notes, uh, the same note six times mm-hmm. if you want to. And uh, depending on where you play it, it also dictates, of course, how you would play the next note. Mm-hmm. And sounds and all right. So it's it's a very dense subject. Absolutely. Yeah. Are, are all of the pieces in the in the shredding series um, written for a solo guitar, or are these more of band scores? Well, for shredding Bach, uh, since that was my first book, and I tried to kind of get a feel and, and kind of like setting up a continuous series, which it turned out to be, um, I tried to. Uh, look at the different pieces, and a lot of pieces, pieces were solo violin pieces, so I had to come up with a appropriate accompaniment. And um, it's hard sometimes because there's so much flowing with, especially with Bach, that is that is uh, very hard to capture in regular, you know, pop and rock style, you know, playing. So I had to be a little bit more creative sometimes. Um, with Paganini, it was a little bit more straightforward. And um, with Shredding the Composers, for example, I went a completely different route. Uh, While Shredding Paganini was more of a solo guitar kind of thing, because, you know, for example, if you arrange the Caprice, Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's all solo violin, you know, and he wrote a few symphonies, but, you know, I I took on one of his symphonies in that book uh, for Shredding Paganini. But they were relatively simple to work with. So for me, Shredding Paganini was all about a solo rock guitar effort, something you can just kind of play and whip out if you want to at Guitar Center or, you mm-hmm. know, or friends or, you know, even if you're on, on stage and you just want to have a little solo moment, you just do that. With um, Shredding the Composers, for example, I took symphonic music. 
mm-hmm. and I brought it down all the way down to a simple rock band setting. Okay. So just drum, bass, and guitar, and that's how I arranged it. And the arrangements are so that you can just, you know, show it to your friends, and you can just rock out in your garage if you want to, or with the backing tracks if you want to. But those are complete pieces that are meant to be played in a rock band setting. Okay. I arranged them, and, you know, it takes a lot of work to, you know, kind of boil the score down, find the important things, and then translate it to the guitar. And then the next step is to make it work on the guitar. Okay. And just one last question on those. Uh, as far as approachability for, let's say, a novice guitarist, are these are these written um, to be kind of full-on Paganini pieces, or, or is there some simplification, or, or how daunting of a task are some of these pieces for maybe someone who's not the fastest arpeggio player in the world? Well, you know, I, I set the books out to be educational, so okay. they're not like, oh, look, I can do this. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, look, you can learn all this, and I'll show you how to learn it, and okay. I'll help you understand how the composers were thinking about putting those things together, and from that on, you can basically... Um, not only learn the pieces, but what I always strive for is to get something out of the pieces. Okay. For example, I've re uh, Alfred is going to re-release Shredding Bach with the DVD, which I filmed in, in, in March, and I added some content, more, a little bit more content to it, where I show the exploration and the process of, for example, learning Invention Number Eight, mm-hmm. and taking the elements of Invention Number Eight and developing your own like, and all those things. So it's really you know, I, I teach you basically how to understand, you know, the great composers and then come up with your own stuff and be creative about it. Okay, so it's not not just a play like it is kind of thing and you walk no. away knowing how to do only that. Which Absolutely not, because in the, in the end, you can't do that yourself. Yeah, well, I, I don't know that I could, but I can I can help. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying, though, is that you, you learn something and take away from that. Yeah. Now, um... You have you had an album in uh, 2010, the Lightspeeder. Yes. Um, and was that, was that your only uh, CD, or do you have other pieces available now outside of Alfred? Um, well, the you know I wrote five books and three DVDs in two years, so that took okay. a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. I've been touring in, in Asia a lot uh, okay. with with my old album. Now the album, the Lightspeeder, was actually originally released in '06. Okay. Uh, through my uh, through my publishing group. And then um, Favorite Nations uh, was interested in, uh, in distributing it. And um, so you know, we worked something out, and uh, you know, that it was re-released in 2010 under the uh, Favorite Nations, Digital Nations uh, label. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been working on new music. Uh, I sent you a couple of tracks. Uh, mm-hmm. Two tracks are from my, uh, old, uh, from my CD, The Lightspeeder, and a new track uh, that I'm, work- you know, I'm kind of leaning towards now. Uh, I still, you know, I'm very diverse when it comes to writing music, but um, I tend to explore you know, different sides of myself, too. Mm-hmm. It's not just kind of like, oh, look, you know, I'm going to be all classical influenced strat guitar. Yeah. I have a lot of, you know, if you listen to that song, for example, I have um, a lot of different sides to offer. Yeah. <laughs> it's a maturity process, too. You know? Yeah. Now, you mentioned um, a little bit ago about the... Um the composers or the, the scores for the TV shows. Is that an avenue you've ever looked into? Yes, I have. I have written a lot of commercial work for, um, you know, car companies and other, mm-hmm. other things. And uh, of course, you know, it would be great to, 
you know, plays music in TV shows or, um, and I've been working on that. And, you know, it's a, you know, these days, uh, it's a tough market. Um, yeah. and you know, of course, as with almost everything, connections and stuff, but I'm definitely working, you know, on it. And, uh, I had, as I said, I had success with writing music for, some bigger car commercials and some other companies. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to say anything because it, I always find it funny when people, you know, put all the credits out and all the stuff. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit more of a, of a private person in that way. Sure. But I work, I work hard on, on my art and um, I try to make it work hard for me. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's it's, it's the reason I ask the question you know, in this, this day and age of, of trying to sell, you know, physical product, and this is this is certainly one of the, the great things about uh, digital nations, especially, is that they try to keep, you know, the publishing with the artist and things like that. That it is tough to make it go. You can't, you know, necessarily record an album and expect to sell two hundred thousand copies of it. You know? So it, you, you know, I think, and obviously you've explored many different outlets with Alfred Publishing and things like that, mm-hmm. because you need to. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, you know, most of the the platinum selling uh, instrumental albums are, are 20 years behind us now, so you know it's good to have different revenue sources. Absolutely, uh, it's true. Now, are you um, do you are you working on a new album then with with Editions? Yes, I'm actually working on a new album. I have a couple of tracks down. Uh, I just got back actually from uh, I teach at Berkeley College of Music during the summer. Okay. So I've gone for the past three months, and uh, you know when when. When, when I'm on the road, so to speak, it's, it's, um, you know, it's not easy to find time to record. Uh, and, you know, I didn't have any of my, I mean, naturally I have a little, mo- uh, little studio, transportable studio with me, but I had no, no other access to amps or anything. And, um, so I had to, you know, I was working on paper on my ideas, but, you know, from a recording standpoint, I couldn't really do much. Um, mm. So now that I'm back, I'm actually picking up. And recording new tracks, and um, I have so far four tracks recorded, and, and I envision it to be a double EP, okay, uh, with different styles and uh, you know uh, coherent in each way, but you know different on the okay. opposite. So, okay. Now you you mentioned teaching at Berkeley. Um, that has to be kind of fascinating. I mean, does that really kind of push you as a player? Uh, you know, when you've got Students and things, because I'm assuming, you know, with any teaching situation, you always kind of walk away learning from your students. Do you find that to be the case? Well, um, it is absolutely challenging, um, because when you teach, you have to not just be able to play the material yourself, you know, that's relatively easy, but you have to um, make it accessible, break mm-hmm. it down, um, make sure that the student understands you're thinking and then can draw something from it. Um, my teachings usually are not based on showing licks. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's actually the furthest on my mind because the lick is a very personal thing and it's a, it's a product of everyone's, you know, education, style of playing, physical limitations and so on. So mm-hmm. just showing a lick a lot of times doesn't really do it. So I'm more of a, um, I encourage all my students always to unfold their personalities in their playing, mm-hmm. and I will never criticize them on, uh, you know, on certain aspects of, of their personality or playing, um, because it's not my it's not my place to do so. Right. You know, if you look at other people that that were criticized and and then subsequently uh, quit doing what they love to do, I don't want to take on that responsibility. Yeah. Because I have, you know, I, there's no. 
I cannot say this is good or this is bad. It's art. It's really hard to say. And I'm not condemning, uh, you know, mediocrity. You know, it's mm. it's um, it's hard to do, and I don't I don't want to take on that um, that role as a, as a judge. That yeah, and, and that's that's a great point because you don't you you know you mentioned about no one to squash. I mean, if you think about the history of time, some of the most memorable guitar riffs and things like that may have been some of the most simplistic things, um, yes. you know, that just happened to fit perfectly. You know, there's a lot to be said for playing tastefully within the constructs of the song and things that, you know, I think a lot of shredders lose. Yeah, you know, they have one speed and they're going to play at that speed and that's it. Absolutely. Um, well, Germán, I want to thank you uh, so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been uh, really fascinating talking to you about the, the instrument and things like that. And uh, We wish you the best on the road, and when you have the new release out, go ahead and look us up. Absolutely, I will. Thank you so much, John, and thank you so much to all your listeners. All right, a big thank you to Germán for coming on the show. Uh, wasn't a guitarist, honestly, was that familiar with uh, until um, we were approached about doing the interview, and wow, I have to say, uh, really, really impressed with his playing and a phenomenally nice guy. I uh, really, really enjoyed talking to him, so um, kudos to German, and uh invite you all to check out German Schaus, it's S-C-H-A-U-S-S dot com, or if you go to ironcityrocks.com, click on the uh, episode 170, there's a link to his webpage, and also a link to, uh, I believe we linked to his latest album, and also to the Shredding Paganini, for those of you who are out there that are just itching to do some arpeggio, so... What we're going to do now is kind of switch gears. We've had uh, uh, some relatively hard rock and metal guitarists on the show. We're going to switch gears to a more jazz progressive uh, with a flair of rock guitarist now, Jane Getter, who, uh, when I listened to uh, the material from her, the very first name that came to my mind was Jeff Beck. Now, because she's got a very kind of eclectic style. So we're going to listen to a track from her called Third Eye, and then we're going to talk to Jane Getter.
episode uh, will, is going to be featuring several of artists on the uh, Favored Nations and Digital Nations label. Um, really excited to get to talk to you because you've got a very, you know, kind of different playing from the other players that we've talked to recently. Your playing seems to be, at least to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, a little more rooted in the jazz fusion world. Um, mm -hmm. would, would you say that's accurate or is that kind of where you draw your influence? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I came through... Um, you know, I was a straight-ahead jazz player for a while, okay. and and then I slowly started mor morphing into more electric, you know, music rock, and uh, so my my music, you know, started uh, I guess entered into the jazz fusion world, and then it was jazz rock, and then it was rock jazz, and then it's like now it's like prog 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 rock fusion or something. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just it's been a slow um, metamorphosis more into rock, so. Yeah, so that's definitely I have definitely have roots in there. Yeah. Now, as, as a young guitarist, uh, how did you get involved with jazz? Because I mean, I, I guess when I, when I think of jazz, as you know, growing up, um, you know, in the '80s and the '90s, where you know the, sh the shredding guitar was everywhere, um, jazz wasn't something that appealed to at least a lot of my peers at that time. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, were you kind of, you know, the odd jazz girl in, in school, or how, how did you get involved with jazz? 
Uh, well, a friend of mine took me to see, I mean, I was into, you know, um, I don't know, blues, rock okay. blues, Almond Brothers, and then yeah. uh, somebody turned me on to um, Return to Forever, um, okay. you know, one of the original um, you know, rock, jazz rock bands, and and I could relate to that because it had a, you know, a rock groove, and there was just some, you know, some cool stuff happening mm-hmm. on top of the rock groove, and, um, and then a friend of mine took me to see Joe Pass play, I was uh, oh, okay. I don't know. I was very young and play solo guitar, and I had been playing guitar, you know, since I was I don't know since I was a kid, okay. and um, I never imagined that the guitar could be played like that. I mean, it was just totally blew my mind, and um, and I was like, I walked out of there saying, I want to do that. Um, so then I just you know hooked up with a with a jazz teacher and, and studied jazz for a while. Um, now, yeah. were you, were, were, like, geographically, where did you grow up? Because I'm curious, like, I know where I grew up, the idea of finding a jazz teacher would be even kind of tricky, other than if you wanted to play, you know, saxophone or, you know, yeah. the, the jazz band in school. Right, right. Like, well, I'm, I'm an East Coast girl. I mean, okay. I grew up in New Jersey. My whole family's from Brooklyn, and, you know, New York is, is my roots. But I, I did live in San Francisco for a little while, and... um you know, I was studying out there. I was taking taking jazz uh, lessons okay. out there, and but when I was there, I was like, "Why am I living here when I could be living in New York?" I mean, that's what's yeah. all happening. So I yeah. moved back to New York, and um, and then just continued, you know, with my jazz studies. And um, I mean, the jazz world is is fairly big, but I, I guess it's you know, unless unless someone exposes it to you, it's not really that prevalent out there, and you know, out in, out there in the mainstream world. Um, but there's yeah. a lot. There's a lot of great uh, jazz guitar players. Not all, you know. I mean, I guess there's more, more and more, uh, you know, women, but not that many still. You know, yeah. just like in the rock world, there's, there's not that many of us still. No, if anything, it seems almost like you see, you see more younger women playing blues guitar even recently. I'm not sure why that is, but I oh, know yeah? there's mm. been quite a few. But um, when you um, when you're growing up, you you mentioned traveling and taking lessons. Did you go to like a formal musical education program, like a secondary education? Yeah, yeah. I actually um, um, actually graduated from City College in New York. Okay. Uh, with a BFA in jazz. Okay. And um, but I did go to um, two other colleges before then, and then I took like a ten year break um, when I was in. Um, I was in San Francisco. I went to San Francisco State, and okay. was there when I started taking uh, jazz guitar. And while I was in school, I was like, and this is not a, well, I don't know. Um, I will continue saying this before I say what I was going to say. But um, when I was in school, I said, I realized that the school is great and everything, but I need to just be practicing all the time. So mm-hmm. I, I quit school for a while and practiced for six hours a day and um, and then went back to school like ten years later and got my degree. Yeah. Now, is for for someone who might be a you know a straighthead rock player who uses mm-hmm. um, is used to kind of minor keys and, and pentatonic scales and things. How how mm-hmm. like from from a musical standpoint, how does jazz differ as far as your choice of modes and keys and things like that? Well, um, there's a lot more. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different scales that you can use. Um, and play with when you're when you're um, soloing over like you know vamps the one chord vamp and um, I mean a lot of the the great jazz players really experimented with that like John Coltrane I mean well Alan Holdsworth in particular I mean you can just go so far outside 
of the main, you know, diatonic key or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, jazz players um, experiment with that a lot. And a lot of shredders do, too, and metal yeah. players do, too. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's that's a, that's a common ground right there. I mean, I've I've jammed with you know some metal players and shredders, and was like, oh, that's a cool scale. Let me check that out. Oh, that's a cool arpeggio. Let me check that out. You know, yeah. And um, it's just used in a different way, you know. Yeah. And approached in a different way and with a different feel, you know, and different sound and all that stuff. But yeah, certainly the feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. that that does seem to to kind of resonate. I mean, you could probably play the same thing with enough distortion and, and whatever you're playing over can make it sound mm-hmm. totally different. Uh, yeah, do yeah. you do a lot of improvisational stuff or, or like when when you when you write, do you just kind of let the tape roll or I should say Pro Tools at this point, but I mean, do you just kind of let it go and record or do you sort of chart out what you're going to do in advance? Um, well, are you talking about your, my compositions or my yeah. following? Oh, my compositions? Um, yeah, I mean, I start out writing, um, I'm an old school writer, I sit down there with a piece of music paper and a pencil, okay. and, um, you know, I just, I just come up with some, you know, germ of an idea, mm-hmm. which could be like a cool little riff or a melody mm-hmm. or a cool chord progression or whatever, I write it down, and then I let my ear, you know, take me to where it goes from there, um, and then when I, when I put it into, uh, when I Start getting it up to the point where okay, I could let me let me let me let me demo this. Let me put this down. Um, you know, I recorded in Logic or, um, or whatever, okay. and and um, and then it just it grows from there. But I I have basically I have the the song and and the structure basically already composed and written down before I do that. Okay, and then um, you have had um, your new album three, uh, which is available through Digital Nations right now, and mm-hmm. will be available. Um, it'll be available physically through a different record label, if I recall mm-hmm. correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now this is this is not your first album. This is what your third or fourth album now. Oh, well, it's my third album okay. under my name. And um, it's three. I, okay. I, I do have a um, another duet uh, project with another guitar player, but it's under both of our names and it's under his label. So yeah. Okay. So third album under my name. Yeah. Now, uh, is this your first uh, foray into digital nations? Yep. Uh, how do, if you wouldn't mind, I mean, just from an artist's perspective, how does how does the process work? Because I know, you know, looking at their site uh, with with a couple unsigned artists, I've kind of just poked around in, in an effort to help them. And I know Digital Nations offers um, some packages that people can get involved with. But how do, how does your situation with Digital Nations differ? Um, well, um, well, first of all, my friend Mimi Fox, who's a jazz guitar player, uh-huh. one of the few great uh, jazz guitar women, jazz guitar player, is on the Favorite Nations, okay. and um, and she um, kind of connected me with uh, with that with the company, with the organization, right. and um, and then I got in contact with um, you know the head of Digital Nations, and um, and. He, I mean, the Digital Nations actually has two two different categories of okay. artists. They have the premier artist, which is what I am, and which is you know a signed artist. And okay. then they have, uh, and I don't know too much about this other category, so okay. I don't know if you know. I, I don't. I don't, don't want to say something that's not correct, okay. but I think you know. It's. I think you can. People can use their services for a yearly fee. Yeah, and um, so, but I don't know if someone's interested in finding out about that. They should just go online and check it out and yeah. see what it's about. So, cause I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. Certainly, yeah. I believe you yeah, can yeah. just go to digitalnations.com and get all the information there mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But then um, you had some experience with Saturday Night Live Band, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that came to be? Because that had to be some amazing exposure. Oh, yeah. That, that was incredible. Um, it was, uh, oh, God, it was in the mid-'90s okay. or late-'90s. And um, they were in the process of changing the band around, and they they wanted to have, like, a band that had kind of like they were calling like the Benetton band, Benetton band, you know, those old ads from Benetton, yeah, you know, right. where they had like like one of every, one person of every race, color, creed, yeah. whatever, nationality. So, um, so they decided they wanted to have a female, uh, an Asian female guitar player, okay. um, which obviously I'm not Asian, but I am female. And so this Asian female um, that they decided to have was having a problem with her, um, her uh, visa. Okay. And um, so I got called in to audition to fill in for her before she actually was able to come, you know, to come here. So, um, so I auditioned and, um, you know, got the gig. And, um, I mean, it's an incredible experience because, it's, first of all, you're playing in a band with just, you know, primo, primo yeah. musicians. And, the re I mean, you have to be able to read incredible. I mean, the reading um, requirement is really heavy. And... Um, as guitar players, we're all known as, you know, being bad readers because, yeah, you know, is. as you know, there's, there's you know, four or five different places to play the same exact note on the neck. Yeah. So when you look at a piece of music, you're like, okay, what position am I going to play this in, you know? And so, um, anyway, so that was, well, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a decent reader. I'm not a great reader, but I'm a decent reader. And anyway, so it was kind of intense in that way. So, um, and then, so you have a rehearsal, uh, during the week you do, they shoot like, you know, the little uh, TV commercial spoofs that they do. So you do right. some of those and then you have a rehearsal, um, you know, in the morning of Saturday and, um, and then you, uh, you come back for a dress rehearsal and then the show's aired. Yeah. So it's an intense thing. You know, you don't have like, you know, a whole lot of time to prepare, prepare your part. So, I mean, all you musicians out there that don't know how to read music, if you ever want to do, you know, a gig like that, you got to learn how to read. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you can't make mistakes, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. The other little yeah, you make up. a mistake, and that, you know, it's like millions of people know yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, how is that experience? Because I mean, as far as the actual audience, it's not that large in studio, mm -hmm. right? Right, right. But I mean, mm -hmm. how do you, in your head, get over the fact that there are that many people watching you? Right. Uh, is that you, is that crippling? Just, I mean, you can't think about that. You can't think about that. You yeah. can't. You just you just have to play. You know, you just have to focus on the music and just play. You know. Yeah, and, I guess. And, I mean, because otherwise it's just like you know, paralyzing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I can imagine the you know the you know if you have sweaty palms you'd be going through strings like crazy <laughs> under that situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Now how how long did you do that? Uh, I did it for like a season. Okay. Half season. Half a season. Yes. Okay, and is that where you you um, connected with Anton Fig? Uh, no, actually. Um, how did I connect? Because Anton plays in the the uh, CBS, the David Letterman CBS. Okay, movie. yeah, I didn't know. Yeah. If maybe you guys had yeah. sort of a. Um, no, I I'm trying to think of where I connected with him. Um, I you know I can't remember. It's, it's like um, you know he's a he's been doing the David Letterman CBS orchestra ever since 
David Letter, you know, Forever. David Letterman aired. I don't know when that was, when it started, but yeah. but he lives in New York and you know he he plays around and um uh, so I just I just know him from um you know fellow musicians um okay. and I mean he's awesome and you know and I I'm just so happy that he's on my new record. Yeah, I mean it was it's a funny name because it's a name that as a kid uh, I was uh, to this day and still unapologetically a huge Kiss fan. <laughs> and, and, and he played drums on on what was my first album, Ace Frehley's uh, solo album. And it's yeah. a name it's a name you don't see a ton. But then um, just recently, I was speaking with Eric Johnson, and he was doing a right. It was just like a one off show with Anton. And uh, yeah, they know, played at the Bitter End recently. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then you know, here it is. You know, two or three weeks later, I see his name again, and it's <laughs> a yeah, that's cool. And the and the bass player, my bass player, is the current bass player on Saturday Night Live. Jim oh, okay. Bennett. Yeah, and he's been doing that for I don't know five, six years, maybe seven years. He's been doing that for a while. Okay, yeah. so yeah, mm-hmm. that's fun. Now the mm-hmm. album, the album three, it's available digitally now, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's available on Spotify and. Um, also, and iTunes, Amazon, okay. all that. Everywhere it's available, yeah. Maybe. Okay, and then the physical product will be available later this fall, correct? Uh, yeah, the release date is October 16th. Okay. Uh, but there are, Amazon does have a pre-order option right now, so okay. uh, you can order it now. Okay, so your, yeah. your website is janegetter.com, and mm-hmm. uh, all that information is there as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there's anything else I wanted to ask you. Um, you were a, your Fender player, I see that as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you been playing those for a while? I mean, uh, is that? Yeah. Um, well, Fender, um, the uh, the Fender artist, um, and they made that Strat for me. I, mean, I think about seven years ago. Okay. Um, so it's a custom custom Strat, and the Tele, my Tele is a '71 Tele. I've had that for I don't know, while fifteen, twenty years maybe. I've had that one before. Yeah. So, that's your, um, that's your and, and I also I also have a beautiful. Um, 1953 ES-175, oh. which is beautiful, but I don't use it that much anymore. Say, that doesn't sound like one you're going to take on the road. No, I don't play it that much anymore. Now, um, so. do you do a lot of touring? Um, oh, well, it goes in spurts. Um, right now we're trying to set up some tours and uh, some dates for you know to support the new album. Um, so that, um, you know, we're working on that. I mean, I do play with other musicians and other, I tour with musicians, my my own band, um, those, those um, dates here and there, um, I have it all on my website. Mm-hmm. And if anybody's interested in, you know, keeping in touch with what I'm doing, they can, um, you know, email me through my website and um, it'll have, you know, I can put them on my mailing list and stuff. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, Jane, I wish you the best of luck with, with the new album. I've had a chance to listen to it and, and thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, again, that's Thank you available. very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Mm -hmm. And I want to thank you for coming on the show, and I wish you the best down the road. My pleasure. Thank you very much. All right, so we've listened to three incredible guitarists, Jane Getter, German Schaus, and the incomparable Steve Vai. So I think it's time we head out to the woodshed. But before we go, I want to remind you to check out ironcityrocks.com, facebook.com forward slash ironcityrocks, twitter.com forward slash ironcityrocks. Also look for Iron City Rocks and the Cast Iron Ring in the iTunes App Store. Both apps are free. Both apps will give you everything you needed to know. And also don't forget Eric Johnson on September 30th at Guitar Center, Pittsburgh. So we're going to head out to the woodshed and learn about modes. Thanks to our friends at AvalonBeat.com. And we will see you next time. 
City Rockers. This is Sue again with the Avalon Beat Project, bringing you part three of Brian's question with modes. Now we're going to finally start getting into some modes. So let's go back to that C major scale. C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. Only this time, we're not starting on C. This time, we're going to start on D. Now, you remember when we started on F, we actually had to change the B note. We had to move it down a fret and make it a B flat. When we did the major scale on G, we had to move the F up a fret and make it sharp to make it fit. We don't do that with modes. When we're dealing with a mode, we keep the exact same notes that are in that scale. So if I start with D, I don't pay attention to the sharps and, and the flats that would come from the major scale pattern. I just pay attention to the notes that are in the key of C. So I'm going to play the C scale. I'm going to start it on D. So D, E, F, G, A, B, C, D. I'm going to take that D and I'm going to just stretch it out another note beyond the octave of the C. I'm going to do the same with E. Now, if we look at F, the F major scale is F, G, A, B flat, C, D, E, F. The F mode that we're going to find in the C major scale has no B flat. It's going to be F, G, A, B, C, D, E, F. Same thing with G. There's not going to be an F sharp. It's going to be G, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Now, you are right, Brian. This does give you a little bit different flavor. You can play through the modes. I'll include those for you. The first mode, starting with the major scale, is actually called the Ionian mode. If I were to go D to D and still stay in the C scale, that would be the Dorian mode. E to E is the Phrygian mode. If I go F to F, that's the Lydian. G to G is the Mixolydian. A to A is the Aeolian, or ironically, the natural minor scale. That is an episode in and of itself. And then B to B is the Locrian. Let's go back to the C scale again. You have a C in your C scale, in your F scale, and in your G scale. You have in the F, C is the number 5 slot, which makes it Mixolydian mode. You have in G, the fourth spot is a C which gives you the Lydian mode because all three of those major scales, F, G, and C, all contain a C chord and some sort of a C scale, whether it be the major scale, the Lydian mode, or mixed Lydian mode, we have yet another relationship between these three. So that, Brian, is where you start ending up with, hey, how do I use this stuff? Because we're not just using a major scale when we float in and out of modes over a piece of music or over a chord. We're actually floating in and out of different major scales. So we're actually bringing in a multitude of major scales to play over that. I'm going to leave you guys with that for the moment. And then when we come back, we're going to finally go through some of the ways that you can use modes in your playing that are going to help you rock out. 